Hey, I'm Amanda from Trifecta Fitness. We're proud to be Clarksville's new Get Fit headquarters. Trifecta Fitness is a state-of-the-art spin and strength training studio. Our spin studio is truly one of a kind in this area, complete with 20 state-of-the-art live fitness bikes and an incredible sound system. Our strength training is done in small groups of six or fewer, and all of our strength and spin classes are scalable for every level of experience. Come see us in the heart of Clarksville, just behind Mapco at the corner of Old Trenton Road and Wilma Rudolph Boulevard. Call us for more info at 931-542-6265 or download our Trifecta Fitness app for a full list of upcoming classes. In October 2019, Arlington, Texas was chosen to be the home of a new national museum, unlike any other. The National Medal of Honor Museum will be a unique home of military history. The 100,000 square foot museums will house exhibits, archives, and artifacts relating to the 3,500 U.S. troops who have been awarded the medal, the nation's highest honor for valor in combat. The museum will have 31,000 square feet of galleries dedicated to U.S. troops who have received the award. The museum CEO, former Navy SEAL and NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy said the museum will focus on education as much as preservation. The building will have five areas dedicated to Medal of Honor winners from the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard. The main gallery will be located in a central plaza under a 25,000 square foot slab of steel, which will appear to be suspended in midair. It will be supported by five pillars. Black Rifle Coffee is a corporate sponsor of the museum, as are the Dallas Cowboys. The museum's board also includes over a dozen major corporations and six Medal of Honor recipients, including David Bellavia, Patrick Brady, and Britt Slabinski. Army Staff Sergeant Bellavia was awarded the medal for clearing an entire house by himself on November 10, 2004, as a squad leader in support of Operation Phantom Fury in Fallujah, Iraq. He killed four enemy fighters and wounded a fifth in close quarters battle. Army Major General Brady flew and coordinated the evacuation of 51 seriously wounded men during a firefight in Vietnam in January 1968. Slabinski, a Navy SEAL chief and team leader, led a rescue team of SEALs during Operation Anaconda in Afghanistan in March 2002. Slabinski and his team flew to a mountaintop ambush site to rescue Petty Officer First Class Neil Roberts, who had fallen from the back of a helicopter. Slabinski led the team through almost constant combat against an entrenched Taliban force. Along with the board members, former presidents Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama serve as honorary directors. The museum is expected to open to the public in late 2024. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. Fit Nation. We are a show founded by a veteran and hosted by two veterans and a military spouse. Our mission is to get people to tell their story to the world. If you're an author, share your tips with Mr. Hutchie. If you're a musician or actor, our audience needs to know how they too can get into the business. Coaches, we love our coaches. Come on and share some of your tips with the Misfit Nation to help them become better versions of themselves. If you're a corporate leader or an entrepreneur, come on and share how you did it and how hard you have fought for success. If you are a veteran, first responder, or Gold Star family, we would love to have you come on and just share your story with the Misfit Nation. We always have time for you. If you're feeling down, 
alone or starting to see the darkness. Stop. Think about those who are around you. You are not alone. You will be missed. If you feel like your problems will be a burden to those in your inner circle or are embarrassed, dial 988. If you are a veteran, take option one. We need you to keep pushing forward. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Misfit Nation. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps and also on our YouTube channel at the underscore Misfit Nation. Subscribe and click the bell to keep you up to date with our latest episodes and all of our news. You can also find us on Heroes Media Group and About Face Radio. Now, let's get to the show. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Misfit Nation. We've been on the road for the for our day gig for over the last week, and uh, we'll be on the road still for the next couple weeks with a, our day gig. And we appreciate you being patient with us and hanging in there with us as we, we go through travel for that and take care of you here on the Misfit Nation. Our next guest is an author, consultant, and executive field of American and international law enforcement. He holds graduate degree in criminal justice management, along with advanced graduate degree in organizational development and systems thinking. He has experience as a police chief in two Massachusetts cities, as well as working in the United Kingdom, Egypt, Sweden, Portugal, and specializing in advising Eastern European police departments in Russia, Ukraine, and Moldova. He is also a subject matter expert in the field of domestic violence and combating corruption. He's an innovative progressive leader in law enforcement who in the past is a past assistant recipient on the International Chiefs of Police Association Individual Award in the field of civil rights. So without further ado, let's welcome Ed Crumlin to the Misfit Nation. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Uh, uh, getting ready. You might not make it in here, but I'm glad you did. Thanks for, for getting up in here and uh, linking in with us here tonight, and uh, of course, hanging out with uh, hanging out with us and the Misfit Nation as a whole. Well, it's my pleasure to have the opportunity to be with you guys tonight. So, Ed, I gave a little blurb about you there. If you don't mind, take us as far back as you want to go and tell us a little bit about you and bring us back to how we got here today. Okay. Um, that's a big question, uh, and I wrote a book about it, <laughs> uh, which is part uh, uh, autobiography, but really goes into my policing career and uh, how I see police in the, in the future uh, and kind of my own journey as to how I got where I got. Uh, for me, I uh, just was a local kid in Massachusetts, and I grew up in a small city. And uh, I didn't really get serious about uh, working in law enforcement until I was in my late 20s. Uh, I had always wanted to get into the field, but I never really put a lot of effort into it until I was like, uh, finally became a police officer at the age of about 27. And uh, that was uh, pretty interesting in the fact that, uh, you know, I subsequently learned um, that People really don't biologically and mentally uh, mature until they're about 26 years of age. 
And uh, I remember an old captain saying to me, I uh, came on with a couple other guys my age and saying, geez, I really like you older guys, you know. You just don't get into trouble like the younger guys and all that stuff. And, and uh, I think really what he was talking about was, uh, he wasn't saying it, but I think he was talking about science in a way. But anyway, uh, I went on and I had a really good career. And uh, I ended up being uh, a police chief, but... Um, my career took a real turn, actually, when I was working on my master's degree, when I was a police sergeant, and uh, I had the opportunity to go to uh, take some summer courses in Oxford, England, at Queen's College. And uh, I had been on the job um, probably about 15 years at that time. And uh, when I went there, I got a chance to study their system, and it opened my eyes to a lot of things that they did there that were very different than what we did. And uh, I had never been exposed to it. Um, you know, the lack of police houses having guns, um, the way they dealt with people. Um, and I, through my education, looked at it through the eyes of what are the results of what they have compared to what our situation is in this country. And they're a lot more peaceful country than we are. And um, I saw the ways that they interacted as being very different. Uh, and I came home and kind of thought about that. And then at the same time, I met a friend when I was there who was also a police officer who wanted to go to Russia after the walls came down, uh, the Soviet Union back in the 90s. And uh, I went with them and became one of the first police officers from the United States to go to Russia with a group of Americans. And uh, it turned out to be a big deal. Uh, CBS went with us. Uh, they covered the trip. And in the fall, we had a nonprofit working with us that brought a group of Russians, first ever to America. And um, we ended up taking this group to Washington, D.C., where they met the FBI director. And before you know it, the State Department was contacting us and had a lot of interest in promoting these kind of programs. And this. I should point out was at a time when the wall came down and there was a really two or three, four years of good feeling and hope in Russia, which is not what it is today by any stretch. But anyway, I, then I started my international career and uh, I got exposed to a lot of uh, leadership opportunities and became a chief and, uh, and then it just grew from there. Nice. I mean, that's a good journey too for a small town kid to, to get it to get to travel the world and see police from a different lens really uh i just took criminal justice uh in my 50s now uh through liberty university for the first time and uh, I, my my lens my aperture was uh, i guess widened on criminal justice and how policing is around the world as compared to us here in america you know, we only see what we what we want to see here and then if you go somewhere else you see oh that's way better but like you said in some of these countries where we say hey it's better they also don't have as much violence. They also don't have as much of X or Y or Z, and we don't have the other part of that as well. So it's hard to expose others to those lenses without having someone like yourself go there and see it firsthand and then bring it back. That's a great observation, and you being a veteran uh, also experienced that, I'm sure. Definitely. Uh, uh, you know, and it's, uh, it's kind of the hidden piece a lot of times that we learn, and the beauty about it is it makes us better. Uh, and it allows us to bring back our ideas and maybe 
improve things a certain way. And uh, that's never to be confused with this isn't a fantastic, great country. Of course it is. It's the greatest country in the world. But, you know, as a, as a person gets experienced and educated, we're not afraid to show the fact that, you know, maybe we don't do things perfect because that's a good democracy. And then that way we go back and we make things even better. So um, I've learned a lot in that respect and you know and i'm sure if you've been in other countries you know how important it is to show some humility and respect for other people uh that goes a long way and uh, i found that that worked tremendously for me when i was working as a police chief that's something that lost on the people the humility side of it going to other countries and uh, meeting people that really hate you for no reason whatsoever to accept that you're not like them. You don't look like them or you're not from there. If you have humility with them and you're not hostile towards them at first, yeah, of course we look hostile as we have our gear on, we have our weapons. We're there for a purpose to help build their country or help them get out of the hole that they're in. But they don't see it that way. They see it as what their propaganda machine is telling them. So exactly. in order for us to build that rapport, you have to have a little be humble and get in there and, and say hey look we're here to help you what is it you need to make your village better your community better and we'll see what we can do to help you isn't it done one-on-one -on -one, one person at a time you build it one block at a time just like a house one brick at a time right i used that philosophy when i was in policing i have a little story uh i was a police chief in one city and then i became the police chief in my home city and um, which was about 45,000 people. And uh, I came back after leaving for a few years and uh, I came back to a really tough situation. Um, at that time in 19, excuse me, 2002, when I took over, my city had a higher murder rate per capita than the city of Boston, which was our capital. And we had a dropout rate of minority students of over 40%. And most of the murders that we had occurring were minorities killing other minorities. And I was brought in to, uh, as they said at the time, create a war on crime. And uh, I can tell you just very briefly that uh, we did tremendous amount of enforcement uh, in innovative ways, especially. And the bottom line was we weren't seeing a reduction in crime. And it wasn't until I reached out to people in the minority community and started to meet with them and listen to them. Prior to getting there, there weren't any relationships with the communities. Um, and I met a very brilliant woman, uh, a Latino woman who introduced me to so many mothers in the Latino community who- uh, I don't know what you mean by. My city has a higher murder rate per capita in the city of Boston, which was our capital. We had Sorry about that. That was just my computer catching on to something. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, and I was brought in to, as they said at the time, create a war on crime. And I think sorry, just one very second. briefly, we did a tremendous amount right. of Siri or Suki is getting in there. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so um, I began meeting with mothers and they began telling me about all the problems they had in the community with their kids and the schools and police officers and all that stuff. And what I chose to do was not defend myself. And I chose to just listen. 
And um, I found by listening and not trying to excuse things, I began to understand how they felt. And they were very frustrated. And a lot of what they were saying was anger, uh, not directed towards me or my officers, really, but towards the situation in general. And I just heard them out and listened. And eventually I began to build some trust. And uh, when you went over my resume, you talked about systems thinking. And uh, this was back in 2005. Uh, myself and this Latino woman named Syra uh, was also a systems thinker. We put together a task force of 40 leaders in our community to find out why crime was occurring. And we had professionals come in and train us on systems thinking, which looks for the root causes of why events happen. So in other words, when crimes happen, they are the events that stem from other things that are happening, maybe not as visible to everybody. And after the work we did, we came up with two things. One, the lack of economic opportunity for at-risk kids. Uh, and the second was the presence of institutional racism within the community. And when I say that, it's not talking about uh, op overt discrimination. It, this isn't a concept that is saying that the police are racist. It's not that at all. What it's saying is that people in the minority community feel that they don't have the same access as other people. And what I did was I created a way for them to access trust with the police and the community. And after we did this work, I also took all the drug money that I was confiscating and using for enforcement and turned around with other agencies, uh, not just police, and we created jobs for at-risk kids. And by the end of the summer, we saw a similar, uh, a, uh, not a similar, but a su substantial decrease in violent crime to the point where this was back in 2005, 2006, to the point where today Fitchburg experienced <coughs> one murder last year and the dropout rate is below 7%. Wow. Um, so what I'm trying to say is there aren't any fast and easy answers to solving you know severe crime problems like we had in our community and the use of force didn't do it but it was only through you know taking myself down a few notches meeting with people and listening to them and gaining their trust where change started to happen in the community oh definitely and uh, i think the community community policing approach or the community of systems approach using the, the beat cop or the patrol cop like we used to have in the old days to get to know the community and actually not just drive up in the car when something happens, but be there, be there during the week, be there a lot of times so the kids are not afraid of them, do not fear them. The, the parents are more than happy to tell them to do something to their kids to maybe shake them up and do something like they did in the old days. That helps, uh, that goes a lot longer than just having the cop come in like a stormtrooper when something happens. And then using, like you said, other agencies within the community, uh, some kind of social work agency or something like that, to maybe combine uh, combine forces to get those kids out of their own way and maybe set them on the path of leadership in the community later in life and maybe take your place on the police force. 
I think that's a great comment. Uh, and that's essentially what we tried to do. And I think we were pretty successful at it. Um, the interesting part about it, though, is we came to that conclusion back in, say, 2005. And it wasn't until like 2018 when all these words and things were coming out uh, about all the problems, you know, whether it was Black Lives Matter or uh, George Floyd's murder, things of that nature. All these same comments were coming out. But to our, you know, experience, we were fortunate to go through that. And I'll tell you one more little story that happened after we did that work and created that trust. A year afterwards, in around 2006, um, I got a call. I was working at home, and I was still chief. And uh, one of my guys told me that uh, the state police had a car chase that came into our city. And they were chasing, as it turned out, a 19-year-old young black man who was driving a car. And one of my officers was asked to help out, and he ended up blocking the car on a side street, and the car was stopped. So the state trooper got out of his car to go approach the young driver, and he panicked, put the car in drive, and drove it towards my officer. And the state trooper shot him in the back of the head and killed him. Wow. All right. Now, when you hear that story today, that to me is a story that burns down communities. Okay. Um, but what was different, what happened back then was I got a call the next morning when I went in uh, from a black minister. And then when I talked about working with the Latino community, I also worked very deeply with our black community and I had their trust and the black minister called me at eight in the morning and he says, uh, doesn't say hello. He says, what happened chief? And I says, well, the story that I just told you is what I told him. And I said, I'm telling you everything I know. I'm not holding anything back. It's transparent. And he said to me, if you said it, I believe it. And um, the next day, we had some protests. There was no violence. And a community advocate from the black community a week later wrote that the police department showed tremendous empathy what had happened in the community. So, um, again, you know, uh, it's, to me, it was a matter of, you know, getting out of my office, getting out to people, meeting with them one-on-one, -on -one, and creating a relationship that when the time came, when the, you know, the excrement hit the fan, I had people I could go to that trusted me. And I think when I look at policing in general, the last couple of years, not so much today, but when things were getting really hard, I think we forgot how to talk to people. Not intentionally. 9-11 um, happened. And when that happened, all the resources that were given to police and community policing were taken away and they were put into Homeland Security and military and those things. And that that's not a bad decision. It's just that it left a void. And we had a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, we forgot the soft tactics, let's put it that way. And we were relying more on uh, 
equipment, technology, manpower, and things of that nature. And I think we're returning now to that uh, method of, you know, getting to know people one-on-one -on -one and creating those relationships. Definitely. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. We kind of went away from the, the soft tactics about that time. You know, I wasn't in the country at the time, but I know prior to leaving the country uh, to serve over overseas, it was a different approach for policing. And it got a lot more aggressive as, as the 2000s went on up until probably around the, the George Floyd or the Michael Brown incidents uh, in St. Louis. And even though two totally different instances, two totally different sets of uh, uh, things that occurred to cause both those instances, but the aftermath of both of them were both tremendous uh, impacts on our whole communities, the, the whole country really, and around the world uh, looked at us to see how we would react. Do you think uh, in the aftermath of that, now it's what, uh, five years later, I guess, uh, since uh, four and five years later from both of them, or maybe six years later from uh, Michael, uh, Michael Brown, actually. But uh, do you think we've moved forward and maybe have a combination of that police method now, or are we still kind of finding our way back to soft mentality? Uh, I think we're, I think we're in process with that right now. You know, I, I would back up and say, we had to respond. We were attacked as a nation. Our resources had to go to protect us in our homeland. So there isn't any fault in this. Okay. Um, but I think, you know, inadvertently, as we say, uh, uh, we lost, uh, you know, uh, the, the promotion of trying to build programming within communities to create relationships. And I think, you know, when we see all these shootings that happen, when I look back and, you know, I'm not on investigative teams or anything, but frankly, you know, a lot of the shootings in a technical jurisdictional sense, are they're justified shootings. And when I say justified, I say that in the way that the police officers are put in incredibly difficult situations and have to make split second decisions. Okay. Now, when you're in those positions, you are going to make errors and mistakes. Okay. And I believe my experience has been that's when you have to dip back into your credibility for people to say, okay, you know, we know you screwed up. We know it wasn't done because of this, that, and the other thing. Um, and it's only if we have that hard on the ground boots work with community where we can get that credibility. And I think, that, I think we unintentionally, inadvertently uh, didn't have or we lost some of that credibility in some of those communities because a lot of those shootings were, if I was in that situation, I probably would have done the same thing, you know? And, uh, you know, there are some things, you know, like that George Floyd thing, you know, that was out of control. That was, yes. just, that was just stupid. And that one uh, Asian cop that was watching him, you know, he got charged and sent to jail and everything. And when I'm looking at that as a cop, I'm saying, he's scared shitless. Mm-hmm. He's afraid not to, you know, not to do what he's doing. You know what I mean? He's being bullied by the other cop, you know, and then this poor guy goes to jail over it. I mean, I see the human side of it all the way, you know, uh, and I just think that we're going to be much better in the future for everybody. Definitely. And I believe if, uh, if communities start, like we were talking earlier about building it brick by brick or person by person, 
if we get back to that community, the community of communities approach and using all the systems in place, I think most of this stuff will take care of itself as people buy in. If you, like you said, build those relationships and get the buy-in from the community, get parents to parent again and not be afraid to parent and get police to be out there and, and be part of the community, maybe play basketball with the kids in the street or use the police act, act, uh, athletic. And I know they still have money in the North, on the East Coast. They use PAL and stuff, but in the South, we don't use PAL. We have uh, SROs in the, in the schools that may maybe sure. talk to the kids about leadership and stuff like that. But it, we kind of lost that connection where you have the athletic league and maybe that leadership uh, mentorship from the police at the same time. Well, I had an officer institute a PAL program when I was chief, and it is still going so strong to this day. It is ex does exactly what you said. It puts the human touch with these kids, and it teaches them leadership skills, and it keeps them out of trouble. Uh, it's a tremendous program. I think it adds that layer of, I don't want to let this person down to the, to the youth. So if they have their parents or their guardians that they don't want to let down, now they have that police officer who's teaching them, being mentoring them. I don't want to let, let him or her down either. So now right. there's more people I don't want to let down. So I want to keep pushing myself to to do great things for not just me, but for for the name of my family and for wherever I wind up in the future. This, yeah, this is this is definitely true. Um, you know, we can do a lot more. Um, you know, I have a saying, uh, the best use of power is to give it away. And um, when I'm a police chief, I have a lot of power. And it all depends how I want to use it. Um, at times, Hey, I was always a big advocate. If there's a bad guy, and he's creating a problem in the community, he's going. There isn't any if, buts, or where's about it. It's not about being soft, okay? But there is a way of empowering other people by, you know, listening to them. And, you know, when people are upset, they're mad about past grievances a lot of times. And they're yelling and screaming. And they're not, it's not personal. You're not coming after you as an individual. It seems like it a lot of times. But if we can sometimes just, you know, let it happen and let, you know, I'll give you an example. When that, uh, I, I didn't find this out. I wrote the book and I wrote that story about that young black kid that got killed. And I didn't write it, this in the book. But after I wrote it last year, I saw the black minister that I had uh, talked to. And he was at the scene of that shooting that night. And he told me this, I didn't remember it. He said, do you remember when the sergeant at the scene called you? And I said, no. He says, well, I was right next to him and he was on the phone. And he asked you, what do you want me to do, Chief? There's all kinds of people hanging around here now that they took the kid away and a lot of them are crying, they're upset and everything like that. And I didn't remember this. And then he said, the minister said that you answered him and he heard it to shut the street off and just let him grieve. Um, and I didn't remember that, but you know, sometimes, you know, when you know people and you know, you have that trust, um, and you can't just do that in every situation. I'm not trying to say that, but when people are given that, moment you know now i can really understand why you know the next day we didn't have any violence because we handled it right um so 
just uh you know that, that's a great tidbit right there and uh it great that he was able to reflect upon it and bring it to your bring it back to your attention what you said that night to your officer that was on the ground your on-scene commander really the young man on the ground who had control of the scene and you gave him that responsibility and leader through your leadership and delegation to take control of that scene and open it up and let them breathe and let them breathe if once you let them breathe and let it out that kind of releases a lot of that tension that grows over time yeah you know and i never quite understood you know i remember when i read the article in the paper empathy you know I, it didn't hit me at the time um because i felt like i was sitting on a powder keg to be honest with you right uh and i was fortunate that i did have all these wonderful resources that i could go to and try to implement which we did but uh you know sometimes you know when you're doing the right thing you know it it, it, it people notice it yes. and when it hits the fan that's when it counts and it, it's always good to not look for the uh, accolades in that situation but receive it anyway even if it's years later like you did there when that minister is able to re have that recollection and uh, the, cl the clarity of the recall does tell you exactly what you said even though you had no, no remembrance whatsoever on what happened yeah um and we're good friends to this day that's awesome yeah so uh you've been talking about your book what's the title of your book uh the name of the book is called just policing my journey to police reform and uh it talks about my upbringing um it talks about my struggles uh, uh i'm an alcoholic i haven't drank in 42 years uh, i went through some real tough times in my teenagers and for some reason i came out of it thank god and uh you know i always never had well i should always never i never had a problem with uh talking about my struggles whether it was with my officers whether it was with op people i arrested on the street um i just put it out there um i was comfortable in my own skin with it and um uh, it paid a lot of dividends for me that's good and uh how has the book been received uh, just based on saying it's so for police reform, I'm sure there was some kickback from some of your brothers in blue. Actually, not much, really. Um, for the most part, it sold uh, far beyond my expectations. Um, uh, and uh, I've done a number of appearances, you know, speaking appearances, a number of podcasts and things of that nature. Um, and uh, overall, um, I think, it touches a good nerve in most people when they read it. You don't have to agree with most of it. And some people have told me I don't agree. All right, and that's fine. Um, but the majority of far, the, the vast majority of people in it um, have been very positive about it, including police officers. Uh, because, you know, everybody gets into this job, just like when you go in the military, to do the right thing and uh you're not there most officers are just tremendous people as as are our serving military people okay they're just people they're human beings and when they see that people are treated well 
whether it's their own officers or whether uh, their own troops or whether it's the public that you interact with, that goes a long way. And you, you know, you really have to get really out of the, out of the whole theme of what the book is about to be against stuff like that. And most people are not like that. That's awesome. And where can people find the book now? It's available on uh, Amazon and um, uh, Barnes and Noble, and also on my website, which is www.justpolicing.org. They can get it through the website, and I can mail it out the next day. Awesome. That website is going across the screen for those who are watching it on YouTube right now. If you're listening, it'll be in the show notes, and we'll we'll send it out as well. Uh, we got a question in the in the chat here for you, and uh, it's from a Jake Holland. Uh, stems from the George Floyd incident where the one officer was afraid to do anything. Was it a good way or solution to get these young officers to not go with the flow? Yeah, um, but being a young police officer, in my own experience, going back to when I was young and I saw bad behavior by other police officers, uh, the pressure to, to conform um, is enormous. So, you know, when I look at that, I look at myself as a young police officer, you know, I'm 70 years old now, and I understand what that kid was going through. I mean, I'm sure in his heart, he didn't want that to happen, you know, but I, I think when they had a culture that was allowing people like that guy to do what he did, uh, that creates tremendous problems. And that's one of the problems that uh, isn't being addressed in reform is how do you change the culture? Um, that's a biggie, you know, and I'll add live one more thing with that. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of, um, the former police commissioner in New York city, Bill Bratton. And, uh, he's written a nice review of my book. He's written a couple of books himself. And, uh, one of the things that we need to do is we need to change the way we train our officers. And I had thought of this idea, uh, proposing this idea, and then I found out Bratton had already done it. And that wow. is change the training that we do. And one of the things he was doing was when you get a new cop and they're on the force, okay, put them in the police academy, start teaching them law and all that stuff, put them in the community with a nonprofit or somebody for 30 days to work with them, to understand what people are going through and to work with community members in non-crisis situations you know you get to work with that single mother who has maybe two or three kids and you get a better understanding you know when i was on the job when i came out i was a white cop i didn't know any spanish or black people i didn't understand those cultures and i was thrown into it and i had to learn on the job let's say and sometimes made the mistakes that i wish i had never done so I would say that, um, you know, we need to be looking at, you know, what the police need to be doing in the future and what's the best way to get it there. And, you know, be bold and don't be afraid to change. Awesome. Great answer. I hope that answers your question. And uh, thanks for asking that question, Jake. Great question for, for Ed here. Ed, if you can give advice to that young uh, man or woman who are joining the police forces in their town or their local community, what three things would you tell them to do as they first get out of that academy? Because 
that's academy's baseline. What are, what's the three best things they can do when they come out of the academy? Well, I would say the first thing I would tell a, somebody going to going to the police academy, and uh, this is the first thing I would tell them. You know, be a thinker. Don't accept everything that you hear <coughs> as gospel. Okay. I'll give you an example. When I was a young police officer, there were no domestic violence laws at that time when I first came on. And I remember the, the trainer telling me, you know, yeah, you go to this guy's house and he beats the snot out of his wife and you get there and uh, it's over. You can't do a thing. Okay. You can't do anything. You have to. And if he tells you, you got to leave, you got to leave. Right. And at that time, our criminal law was based on British common law, which was a man's home is his castle. And what happens there is none of your business. Okay. Well, since then, we've evolved from that. But I knew in my gut when I listened to that in my classroom saying, wait a minute, that's not right. Okay. Uh, and I remember saying something and I remember somebody in the class telling me to shut up. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I wasn't going to win any argument or anything, but I knew I was right. All right. So, Stay true to who you are as a person. That's what I would say is probably the number one thing. The number two thing is, you know, water seeks its own level. Okay. And if you've been in the military, you know, too, that you make friends with people that you have a lot in common with. You learn about other things and uh, you become friends with other people, too. But, you know, there's a saying that says we look for ourselves and other people. So. There's always uh, people that if you have good values, those people are going to come to you and you're going to be able to create your own growth and support system within it. And uh, the other thing, probably the last thing is, you know, be honest. Um, you know, I, I remember when I went to court when I was a young guy and I, 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 I it takes a while to learn how to testify in court. You know, it's not as easy as it looks. And I remember I was being asked a uh, questions by a defense attorney, and I don't remember what the case was. And he asked me a critical question, and I didn't know the answer. And I said something to the effect of, I don't know. I'm not sure. And the guy ended up being not guilty. Uh, and you know, I remember a couple of police officers were watching me testify and they were kind of looking at me like, well, say something, say something. Well, I didn't know what to say. So I didn't say anything. I was honest. And I had two or three people come to me later on and say, you know, you really, you were honest, you know, um, people in the worked in the court, a judge, you know, they were like, that set my credibility for the rest of my career, you know, um, so sometimes you gotta you know you're not always gonna win and you gotta own up to the fact that you don't know and be honest outstanding that's great three great tips right there and hopefully those who are thinking about going into the career of law enforcement becoming a leo uh heed those heed the uh, advice right there and, and maybe seek a guidance from maybe someone that's seasoned like yourself or maybe a senior officer that they might know in their family or friendship, their friend circle to get more advice as they go forward. Absolutely. Ed, Ed, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, it's been great chatting with you. Great uh, chat here. Uh, 
Jake, thanks for your question, and thanks, everyone, for listening to us here as we come to you live from Louisiana today. Uh, Ed, uh, again, thank you for taking some of your time tonight to hang out with the Misfit Nation. Thank you. I'm privileged and honored to be here. Thank you. All right. Have a great night, Ed. You too, and stay cool. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for checking us out and being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit at our website at themisfitnation.com. It's themisfitnation.com to catch up on all of our episodes and also to get some of that great Misfit Nation gear. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling because we are 